0: The
1: coal industry was just the top of that pyramid, just like the textile industry. The real destruction happened as you as you got to the broader parts of the pyramid. All the supply chain just crumbled. So anyway, it's good to see Kings Mountain building back.
0: Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern kentucky check them out Appalachia meets world we're back it's will and neil what up brother i a new computer we'll see how the sound goes i know our guests can't see this but your uh pictures are already better man you look five years younger at least wow camera does that huh <laughs> apparently two decades old uh computer to a new one I mean <laughs> maybe. possibilities are endless maybe I need an even more powerful computer and then I'll be 10 years younger yeah what else is going on just uh trying to bear the cold cold winter blast blew in Appalachia this week and uh had a little snow on the ground wheel I saw that that's crazy that's even colder than it is here snow in October hasn't happened in 60 years really yeah can you believe that you you haven't had snow in October in sixty years. Nope, not in these parts. Wow. So, Will, you got some app news of the week for me? Uh, I have a little bit, a few few little tid tidbits. Soar shaping our Appalachian region. They just finished their summit yesterday. The annual summit, October nineteenth and twenty, took place in Pikeville, Kentucky looked like a great turnout. I know uh, one of our previous guests, Gail Manchin was in attendance. That's big time. Yeah, definitely. I I heard it was a really great turnout. Sorry. We weren't able to attend this one. Busyness of life got us this time, but hopefully we can make the next one. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll look into that. And I know they'll have some more mini summits as well. The annual summit back in Corbin, Kentucky next year. Yeah, another shout-out to Kobe Hall with, with SOAR. Does an excellent job, and I uh, really appreciate uh, them for, number one, being a sponsor of ours, and
1: number two, doing all the
0: good work they do in Appalachia. They really stepped up during the, the floods over the last last month, and, you know, just shout-out to them. Yeah, definitely. I know they have a number of partners, and it's not easy convening all those partners into one place, and they do a really good job of that. Another uh, – little. Little business item or, or app news that I have. There was the Appalachian Forward Conference that was held in Ohio, the Appalachian Forward Conference of Ohio. It was put on by the Ohio University Buonovich School of Public Leadership. Shout out to the Buonovich School of Public Leadership. It's an excellent program that they have there, but they held this. Appalachian Forward Conference, there was over 160 people in attendance, 160 organizations. It was really for them to get together, not necessarily to decide upon, but talk, discuss what they were going to do in regards to the $500 million that's available for the Appalachian counties in in the state of Ohio. I heard, obviously, it was a good turnout. I heard it was good discussion. I really think somebody should pull us in on one of those conversations. Will I got some ideas? Don't you? Yeah, definitely. I I think we could. I'm always always really excellent at spending others' money. (laughs) I actually think we could have attended. It was open to the public. Can I list that as a skill on a resume? Spending other people's money. Yeah, I I think so. Is that is that something you can add into uh, your your deck of cards as a talent development? The, yeah, yeah i think so <laughs> i think so too a couple other app news items on october 29th city of bristol tennessee the country music museum in historic downtown of bristol is having a free public tour of the country music museum it's the birthplace of country music or that's how it's that's what it's known for. And they're having to open it up free to the public on October 29th between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. So that's a cool day. They got a lot of a lot of interesting things going on that day. It's Check it out if you're in that area. It's a cool museum, but also it's free that day. It's next Saturday. We'll make sure you're in attendance if you're uh, if you're nearby. Sounds like sounds like something worth a visit. One other item I wanted to mention, I know there's tons of stuff going on. There's a lot of money floating around. The ARC has is, is allocated a lot of funding to a lot of states. But one thing that I wanted to mention, we, we've talked about Apple Shop on here several times. It's a Kentucky-based nonprofit. They uh, focus on teaching community members how to produce documentary media. But also, they do several other things. They They did a really good job in, in regards to flood relief. I know that they were really impacted by the floods, but they just recently received a little over $60,000 from the EDA to do a feasibility study to measure the economic impact that they have in Whitesburg, Kentucky. They're looking to expand their services throughout central Appalachia. That includes Kentucky, that includes West Virginia, and that includes Southwest Virginia and Eastern Tennessee. They're just trying to expand their services to create this network of media makers and media spaces. They felt like what they've done in Whitesburg has really added a boost to to the economy there. And they're trying to see if it's feasible or if it's workable, that they can add a little boost to the economy elsewhere throughout Central Appalachia. I think it's a cool concept, cool idea, something that would be very beneficial to the region. i get behind it for sure. Sounds like great stuff going on. Yeah, they do a really good job with youth media as well. I know they have a summer youth academy for students in Eastern Kentucky and and just opening this up to all of Central Appalachia is really cool. You know, uh, you mentioned the cold weather and I I know we talked about in in previous episodes, we postponed our AT or the Appalachian Trail hike. You know, we were going to hike the Smokies. We still want to do that, but it's getting a little colder now. Uh, it's getting a little little harder to do. But one thing that has could possibly help us with cold weather. I don't think we've mentioned this before, but we got a couple of Appalachian Gear Company hoodies. And I have to tell you, Neil. At, at first look, I didn't know I didn't know what to expect. When I, but when I put the to put the hoodie on, I mean, it's buttery smooth, and it was incredibly warm. I think it's will be a definite must for the hike. Yeah, I think so for sure. will you know, talking about cold weather, you got to just properly prepare for that uh, when you're hiking, when you're outdoors, when you're camping, any type of outdoor activity that you're doing in the cold, you got to properly prepare. The The gear we have from the Appalachian Gear Company definitely gets you in the direction of proper preparation. Definitely appreciate them. and I, And I'm so looking forward to hearing more about their company tonight. Yeah, we got Mr. John Gage John, one of the co-founders. Him and Mike Hawkins actually founded the Appalachian Gear Company after spending decades in the textile industry, manufacturing industry in the region. When we first found out about the Appalachian Gear Company, we were looking for some gear for our hike, and there was no other better place that we found than the Appalachian Gear Company. So I'm looking, like you said, looking forward to hearing what John has to say about the Appalachian Gear Company, how they got started and what they expect to do going forward. Yeah me too. Let's uh let's get right into it so we can learn more about this this great co- company. All right, let's go. Let's get him on here. On the show today we have the Appalachian Gear Company. It's an outdoor lifestyle company specializing in performance-based clothing and equipment manufactured in the U.S. It's really headed in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And from that company and on the show, we have owner, entrepreneur, and founder, John Gage. He's actually really a pro in the textile industry for the past 30 years before starting the Appalachian Gear Company in 2015, So, John, we know how busy small business owners, entrepreneurs are, so we appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Glad to be here. A pro
1: might be a little strong, but I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to ask you a question that we ask all our guests to kick it off, but like most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition. Our family's big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually it's this big spread of appetizers, bigger than the actual meal. But so we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish?
1: Oh, I would say my favorite appetizer would have to be stuffed jalapenos. Nice.
0: Poppers. My wife happens to be a really good cook.
1: And so the only thing I I have to do around the holidays is cook barbecue or turkey. Well,
0: Well done. So she makes them herself, the poppers?
1: Oh, yeah. I used to weigh about like 175. (laughs) It's all her fault, right, John? She she keeps me eating so I can't get out on the trail.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I didn't mention what the Appalachian Gear Company, what sets it apart, what material it's made out of. But can you just tell us about the Appalachian Gear Company, you know, how you got started and what really sets it apart?
1: Yeah, so the Genesis. Uh, my partner Mike and I have both been in the uh, textile industry pretty much our whole careers, and and uh, not always textile manufacturing, as in uh, fabrics, but we've been in the textile chemical business also. So we both got our start in the Fortune 500 back when there were actually Fortune 500 textile companies. These days, I don't really consider. I won't mention any brands names, but. Some of the big brands we know aren't really textile companies because other people make all their stuff overseas. We've actually been partners on and off for 30 years. We started a textile dyeing and finishing company back in the uh, early 90s, actually 1991. Uh, Ran that successfully until the entire textile industry, apparel industry, left the States. And Most people know now that only 2% of our uh, apparel is made in the U.S., So what happened was the entire customer base left, and we were actually a part of the supply chain. So we went our separate ways uh, for a few years, and then we got back together and started a, a chemical company that we were concentrating on environmentally friendly chemicals. So trying to go out and find people that we had dealt with in the textile industry that had moved on to other industries, auditing their operations, and then trying to chemical products and chemical procedures with more friendly alternatives. But along the way, I started telling Mike that we really, we need to get back in, in the textile, the fabric part of it. He wanted to get back into it also. We just didn't know what to do. I had been doing a lot of backpacking with my kids at that time. So they were they were young, but old enough to backpack. I'd been wearing a lot of Merino. And uh, at some point, the idea of alpaca, using alpaca fiber, uh, landed on my radar screen and uh, started talking to Mike about it. And I, I was researching it. I even took an alpaca class. There's a little textile trade school near Charlotte it's been around for a long time they had an alpaca class for people that wanted to raise alpacas and make crafty alpaca stuff and I was like you know why is there nothing written on this and I couldn't find any research uh alpaca is a superior fiber to merino but there were no performance fabrics made out of it so Mike uh, we've got a little video stinger out where Mike's saying that he said I was crazy as hell and he did because he's like you're crazy as hell I, we can't <laughs> you know how are we going to do that we called a friend of ours that had been in the business who's even older than us, but he's one of the preeminent knitters in the world. You know, even though my degree is in textiles and Mike and I have been in textiles our whole career, you, it's, it's like, uh, you, you can't be an expert in every single thing. So the guy comes in and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to make a uh, performance fabric out of alpaca fiber. And, and he immediately said, "Oh no, you're crazy as hell. We tried to run that in 1972 and you can't run it, you know? And, I was like, why, you know, I kept, I couldn't get it out of my head. And so the bottom line is that it's just a hard fiber to run. And so I'm going to skip through all the, I told him to think about if he could do this any way he wanted to, how would he do it? And so it, it took him a couple of weeks and he said, if you'll let me get the type of machinery that I tell you to get for the knitting and let me customize it, I think we have a shot. And he said, if we can't do it that way, then it just can't be done. And, and people listening might say, oh, well, there are other alpaca things. My grandmother had an alpaca sweater. And, yeah, there's a lot of alpaca knitted certain ways. But to be a performance fabric, um, it has to be a little bit different type of fabric. It just can't be one of those fluffy sweaters or a scarf like you find at a luxury store. And also the price point had to be competitive with Merino. People don't really know that alpaca is four to five times more expensive than Merino. Alpaca. So it was a tall order for us to figure out how to knit something that had never been knitted and to meet and do it in the United States and then to meet the price points. Um, And and that's just assuming we actually could be successful making a performance fabric. So that whole process took us probably three years. Just the R&D. Just uh, just the R&D. And we had this other company. So the back story is we virtually put every dime of profit for our other company into starting Appalachian gear. And that's how we started. And in our other company, it's more of a project based company. It's kind of, uh, what have you done for me lately kind of thing. It's been a good run with it, but really our hearts were in the textile industry. And th- the other thing we agreed on was that we weren't just going to import something. We weren't going to make something out of uh Merino or even cotton because there are a zillion people. And, you know, we're just two guys trying to start a company and if you're going to start a company, the best thing you can do is have a unique product. That was our core design strategy. We've got to have something unique or we just don't have a shot because we want to be an e-commerce company too. You just have no shot at building a brand if you're in a sea of similarity. But sure enough, we got it developed. And a lot of people may know there, there are a few other companies out there that are making alpaca products. Most other companies that I see that are making alpaca products Alpaca products aren't using 100% alpaca. And our, all of our initial products were 100% alpaca. The shirt I'm wearing right now is the, the new sun hoodie we just put out. It's actually 80% alpaca and uh, 20% tinsel, which comes from uh, eucalyptus trees. And the reason I did that uh, was specifically to prove that you could make performance fabrics out of other natural substances and not have to use polyester and nylon. Uh, that's the brief story of how it
0: happened. Neil and I are both both wearing a, a hoodie, not, oh, not nice. the new ones, but the older ones, and uh, they're they're buttery smooth. I have to yeah, tell man. You. When you when you first look at them, you don't expect them to. Be, it's kind of like merino. When you first look at merino, you don't expect it to be as smooth as it is when you put it on. But yeah, they're yeah. warm, they're smooth. We can't wait to give a review. Well, the interesting thing
1: about the fleece too. So we didn't develop the fleece first. We actually developed the t shirt material first, and not this material. We had a hundred t shirt. Back in 2018, and uh, then we developed the fleece. We didn't know how to make it. it was a mistake, as most people in manufacturing would tell you. So we'd be in the plant trying to overcome one problem, and then you know you, you just start throwing things at the wall, and something sticks, and you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And that's how we developed the fleece. I mean, we we wanted to have fleece. We were just trying to tackle that problem. The interesting thing about the fleece, and it just goes back to the the fiber in general. Most people are used to having a thick, fluffy fleece product because it's polyester. And, you know, polyester is, I always say this, and I always preface this by telling people I'm not an environmental activist necessarily. So I don't browbeat people for wearing polyester because it's going to be around forever. But we do walk the walk. We, we have an environmentally friendly operation and we require our suppliers to have their proper certifications. The thing about alpaca, you know, with polyester, you used to have to have more and more and more of it for it to work because it traps airspace. With alpaca and with merino, it's different. The fibers themselves are insulating and the fibers themselves are also cooling. It's just alpaca does it better than merino, but it's degrees. I would never browbeat somebody for choosing merino because that's not polyester. So um, the interesting thing about alpaca though is when you pick up the fleece, it seems lighter than what you would expect it to be. And it seems more airy than what you expect it to be you know, you can hold it up and almost see through it, but it's substantial because it's, it's a 230 gram fabric, but the way we've knit it so that it can really breathe and so that you can get the highest and best used out of the alpaca fiber. But what, you know, when you put that, when you put that hoodie on, and if you're in a chilly and windy environment and you put a wind layer on top of it, it's incredible how well it works. And, you know, I was, I always tell this story. I was out skiing uh, right before the COVID shutdown out West. And I was wearing one of our uh, fleece net gaiters and it was five degrees on, you know, and, and heading up the hill. and I was like, damn, this thing really works. And I was laughing about it. The person I was with is like, well, why are you laughing about it? You made it. Did you not know it works? And I'm like, well, no, I haven't ever skied out West with it. I know it works, but just to experience how warm it really is and and how your neck doesn't itch because it doesn't get that kind of a funky itchy sweat going like you do with synthetics so we i mean we're amazed all the time at how awesome alpaca is i wish i'd invented the fiber itself but yeah the fleece we're the only ones in the world that make that fleece and uh what's different um you can wash it and tumble dry it and you know there's so many of these products out here that have the synthetics blended in And you got to wash them and lay them flat. there's nothing wrong with laying flat, but, you know, sometimes you want to fluff up your items without them getting all twisted and shrinking and all that. So, you know, we're we're pretty proud of what we've been able to accomplish.
0: Well, it's definitely quality. Um, Aside, aside from the product, I wanted to ask you about, so, so in North Carolina, um, in Appalachian, North Carolina, but in North Carolina in general, when you talk about the industry, when you talk about history, most people, when they think about Appalachia, they think about coal. They think about timber. They think about steel. But, you, you know, what some people may really not know is that North Carolina has a rich history and really known for the textile industry, dating right. back hundreds of years. Can you speak a little bit to the history of the textile industry in North Carolina?
1: Yeah, it's re- and it's really interesting. Uh, one of the large power companies here, Duke Energy, got their start as a textile company. Uh, oh, wow. James Duke. Yeah. So James Duke, who Duke university is named after, uh, was originally, uh, a, a textile executive. He was an entrepreneur and he had some cotton mills. And, uh, right after that is when hydroelectric power happened. And then he eventually got away from owning textile mills and, and having Duke energy. So, uh Another thing that people, these are some interesting tidbits people might not know, but air conditioning was developed for the textile industry. Um, You know, you come down South and it gets hot and humid and it's really hard to spin um, cotton yarn when it's so humid. And so air conditioners were invented to condition the air so that you could spin yarn. And it just so happens that they also cool down the air and wound up in homes and buildings. but, you know, the, the uh, textile industry started in the Northeast, uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, those, those areas. And uh, during the uh, Industrial Revolution is when the textile industry moved south. On one hand, you could say the textile industry has always been in flux, but uh, it was down here for close to 100 years you know, what, what wound up happening is you had generations and generations of families that were in the textile industry, families that put kids through college and kids came back and worked for the mill. But this time they came back as engineers and chemists after going to state and Clemson and Georgia Tech and Virginia Tech and places like that. But what's really interesting is there are a lot of these small towns built up around the textile industry. So uh, the whole idea of the mill town which has somewhat of a negative connotation these days. It was invented by a guy that actually owned a house in the neighborhood I'm living in now. And his, his name was uh, Stuart Kramer. And he was architect behind a number of mills. And he designed a mill village. And there's actually a town called Kramerton that's, that's named after him. But when the textile industry moved south, the south was still pretty much, uh, it wasn't industrialized. There were a lot of people just scratching out of living as sharecroppers and living up in the, the hills and all around. So when the first mills were built, they built the villages around the mills to have so that people would have a place to come and live and go to work. And so there was a whole ecosystem around that. The textile heritage is something, uh, what's interesting, my family was not in the textile business. I was the only one in my immediate family, but I had cousins that were in the textile business. And that's why I chose to go into the, the textile curriculum at state. Well, I was really drawn to it for two reasons. The, the people that worked in the mills, I love working around because they were all highly skilled people. I learned, I learned more from the old timers that I worked with when I first got into the business than I ever learned in school. And they could do some really amazing things, plant engineers. I called them plant engineers, maintenance guys. They could do everything electric. They could do welding. They could fabricate their own parts. People that were dyers that didn't have textile uh, degrees, they knew more about chemistry than any of the people that I knew that graduated in textile chemistry. And and they can, they could do some amazing things with putting shade on fabric and making it match the standard. That's what we lost when uh, all the trade agreements happened. So I was just backpacking out in Wyoming a few weeks ago and people would see my patch and we'd start talking and, you know, eventually come up that that I founded Appalachian Gear, I feel like we look a lot larger from the outside looking in because we've, we came out of the gate and won a couple of backpacker magazine awards. And we've gotten in a couple of outside magazine buyer's guides. Um, But we've, we've got 17 employees. We're still really small. We've proven that you can do it, but whether we can do it long-term, I mean, you don't like to say it, but you know, we still, uh, as soon as we started selling to the public, then COVID hit. And so we had to wait through two years of COVID at the same time we had to move because we were growing. So we moved doing during COVID and we had all the supply chain issues. The interesting thing that we have learned firsthand is the intellectual capital, the people whose parents or brothers or sisters or cousins worked in the, in the industry, they're all gone. You know, 25 years ago, you could put an ad in the paper and you know, everybody walked in the door would have had five or seven years experience in a mill somewhere. Well, now nobody does. So that's been really tough in a way, but it's been really awesome in a way because we've got uh, a number of employees that are like 18 or 19. that came straight out of high school and we're training them and to watch them learn how to actually pick up a, a valid skill and to learn some things that not many people know. Yeah. Uh, you know, we keep the plant pretty well locked up tight because it's a our process is patent pending. Um, we had to customize every piece of machine and, and the, the process that we came up with. Sometimes it's the craziest thing that I've ever seen. It's not anything that we would have. We tried to do it. We tried to make this fabric the standard way. Couldn't do it. So anyway, training young folks has Been a pretty cool part of this job, and and we've just recently gone all the way vertical. So now we not only make our own fabric, but we sew it also. We sew our own garments, and uh, we had a couple of experienced sewers come in off the street, and then we've got a couple of sewers
0: that we're training, and they're and they're doing an awesome job. So
1: that part's been really cool.
0: You know, you first started like I said in 2015, but in 2021, you made it a point to move your facility to Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And was that really to bring the history of textile back to that small town?
1: What's interesting, the business we had in the 90s was also in Kings Mountain. Kings Mountain was the last place I looked. And it wasn't for any reason other than I didn't think about looking there. But we had to move out of Charlotte. Charlotte was expensive. And not to disparage Charlotte, I was born and raised here. But the the city government in Charlotte didn't even know we were here. You know, we're small fish in a super large white collar town. And we really needed to get to a place where there were more reasonable lease rates. You know, Charlotte is a town of restaurants and breweries and and rent is high. And there are not a whole lot of buildings here that work for our type of operation. The funny thing is, it's almost like an old movie where you, you drag out all these old retired people. <laughs> and so we I called our old real estate agent that I'd used in the early nineties, we need some space. And he got in his car that day and found us a plant. And so we had signed a lease within a couple of weeks. Back. We packed up our stuff and moved out of Charlotte. And we only had a few pieces of machinery here. Uh, that was another thing. We couldn't fit a lot of machinery in our plant. We were in a space that was about 6,000 square feet, but it only had like 3,000 square feet of usable space. And so now we're in a, we've got a total of 15,000 square feet. It's not a huge plant. The the plant we had in the 90s was, uh, well, we had 50,000 square feet of manufacturing space and 75,000 square feet of warehouse space. But that's because we were in a high volume business. And what we're in now is a really specialized business. So that's the story of Kings Mountain. And the, the other interesting thing is that the mayor that was the mayor of Kings Mountain when we were there in the nineties was not the mayor for a number of years. And then in recent years, he had been reelected again. So we've got the same mayor we had 25 years ago. And it's, I mean, it was kind of like old home week when we went back in and everybody, Kings Mountain, like a lot of other small textile towns, it fell on hard times for a while when the mills moved out, it was a textile town for Kings Mountain has done a kill job Um, high tech companies in town, but we're going to actually open a little storefront in front of our cut and sew plant. So our cut and sew facility is in the oldest building in downtown Kings Mountain. It used to be a hardware
0: store. So it's a pretty cool space. And so that, that will be your first brick and mortar right now. You're just e-commerce, correct?
1: Just e-commerce. What we find a lot of our sales are come from word of mouth. Uh, People see our stuff on trails all over the place uh, and they buy it. But what we also find is that well, every week we get multiple questions from people that asking if they can come and try on some things and if they can come pick up their order. And and we never really had a spot to do that. So what we've realized is, even though we've been around for a few years now, the, the product itself is so new and people don't know what it feels like or how it fits. And we just thought it would be so convenient for us to have a little place for people to come by. Kings Mountain is within a 45 minute drive of 2 million people. It's on the way from Charlotte to Asheville and Charlotte to Greenville and Greenville to Charlotte. And, you know, so it's, we're right in the middle of a lot of things. It'll be a great way for people to come by. And we do a lot of festivals, different types of festivals. And the festivals are always big events for us. I generally lose my voice at festivals and I still go man, when we go to a festival, we'll start up one day and the crowd comes in and we, we start talking and we don't stop talking until the end of the festival. And it's really makes us feel good because sometimes, you know, especially during COVID when you're, we were so isolated, you're like, man, you know, where's the market, you know, or people forgetting about us, you know, and you go out and next thing you know, there's the crowd. And the greatest thing is that every festival, people are coming up with hoodies that now are three years old and they've, hiked in them and slept in them and everything else and you know that's always a good feeling too
0: and that's cool to hear about uh, that small town environment that's small town atmosphere I, I read that you won a state grant fifty thousand dollars to help you relocate your facility to kings mountain and that was really the purpose of that was to strengthen the rural communities within north carolina so i think that's an important point in regards to you And you you were talking about the festivals, but really rebuilding the downtowns in those small rural areas.
1: Yeah, Kings Mountain has done a lot to uh, rebuild uh, their downtown area. And as I don't know if you know or not, but there's a casino being built in Kings Mountain. It'll bring a lot of people in too. So yeah, the town really is uh, so much different than it used to be. They've just done such a good job rebounding from the the destruction. You know, people that are in their twenties and thirties now just don't really understand what happened. But um, between probably ninety eight and two thousand and five, it was a literal tsunami. The entire industry left the states, and I mean, all there are a lot. You know, the people that had been had spent their lives in the textile industry had nothing to. There was there were no jobs left, and it wasn't just the mills shutting down. You Think of all the support business around mills, so sheet metal shops and valve shops and piping shops and plumbers and
0: electricians. Neil and I are from coal country, so we totally understand that. Same thing, yeah.
1: I mean, it's like the coal industry was just the top of that pyramid, just like the textile industry. The real destruction happened as you as you got to the. Broader parts of the pyramid, all the supply chain just crumbled. So anyway, it's good to see Kings Mountain building back. And, in, you know, other places like people don't think about Asheville as being a, a textile town. You know, Asheville is a funky art town, you know, and a brewery town. But back in the day, they had a ton of textiles up there. And yeah. so they've they've remade themselves, too. And all these little towns, I mean, Gastonia and Belmont and Greensboro and Salisbury just goes on and on, Morganton and Hickory. Hickory at one time made 90% of the hosiery in the world, which, you know, socks and all that kind of stuff. We hear a lot that people tell us that we're kind of a bright spot and what's going on, but I always caution people. I honestly believe it would be impossible to rebuild something like Cone Mills or Burlington Industries. It's just never gonna happen here again. But anybody that can come up with either a unique product or just a really killer product or a company that's making some kind of textile product that has some other competitive advantage, you can still do it here, but it's going to be small. There is not the support structure
0: uh, left for the entire industry. You know, you talked about sustainability a little bit earlier and how your product's unique. Is this sustainability part in uh, an important part of your company, an important part of your, I guess, motto or or, or company in general? It's a, it's
1: a core piece of it. And, and again, so I, I said earlier, I'm not an activist. You know, uh, I feel like there's a place for activists when things don't happen fast enough, you know, activists get in your face and all that. But at the same time, you have to have people that, you know, pick up the ball and run with it and not just be an activist. And so one of the core principles that we had, so number one, we have to have a unique product. It's hard to build a small business if you don't, because big companies can outspend you in marketing every day. And the sustainability story was going to be key. So we could have easily punted and had 50% polyester blended in with all of our alpaca. But the fact of the matter is we we are not doing that. So the sustainability piece is that the vast majority of our product line is 100% alpaca. The the new t shirt material, which is 80 20, the 20% is tin cell, which is made from eucalyptus trees. So it's a cellulosic fiber. We're writing a little bit more about why we chose TinCell. Some people get it confused with cotton because TinCell and cotton are both cellulosic, but cell is a performance fiber. And the reason we chose 8020 is very specific. And primarily, it was to maximize the uh, cooling properties of TinCell without hurting the insulating properties of alpaca. And alpaca has really good cooling properties too. Tencel's tensile strength is actually higher than merino and alpaca, believe it or not. So it helps you make lighter weight fabrics. And incidentally, that's why most of the lightweight merino products have nylon or polyester blended in them because the merino just doesn't really hold up that well when it's light. All of our fabrics will, will always be uh, the natural fiber fabrics. So that's the ball we're carrying. There are plenty of people that have blends with synthetics and, uh, general public may or may not pay a lot of attention to it. Um, people generally like to buy products that work and products from companies that they like. So we're trying to build up a loyal fan base of people that like us and at the same time hold up our promise to show that we can build or, or produce performance fabrics with natural
0: fibers. And who is that consumer base? Who, who do you focus on? Is it the uh, casual, athleisure person? Well, is it more of the athlete or the... Um... Gearhead, if you want. To well, we would
1: we would love for the ath- athleisure people to buy our stuff, but when you first start out, you have to go in a direction, and you have to go at it hard. You can't be all things to all people. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a good example. My design uh, strategy with the hoodie was to have the simplest seam structure possible. So you notice I've just got the shoulder seam. And I've got the arms and I've got the neck and I've got the bottom hem and that's it. If you go look at some of the big name products, they'll have seams everywhere like train tracks and articulated elbows and thumb holes and, and a lot of things like that. I wanted to make a lightweight product that really worked that would be useful for the people that were doing the things that I was out doing, backpacking, you know, paddling, being out in the woods. We felt like if we could do that really well, that it would just naturally kind of bleed over into other markets. So, our, our primary customer is generally in the 22 to 45 range and is an active camper or van lifer or through hiker or day hiker, you know, paddler, climber. It's, it's those kind of hardcore outdoors people look at some of the big brands and I don't want to name any names, but you know, some of the big brands that used to have the really good products At some point, they've got to get that volume. So then they come out with a one size fits all kind of product. You have to homogenize it. And then, you know, the goal for these big companies is to get as many people buying as possible. So then you have to bleed over into the fashion side of it, because certainly, you know, you can wear our stuff to out to breweries and restaurants and friends houses and all that. But we're not, we don't develop products with fashion or, you know, obviously, just can't be like a square piece of cardboard. There has to have, a, you have to have a little bit of style. The one thing that we do that we think is different than most folks. So again, a lot of people that listen to you may not realize that a, a lot of brands they see, most brands, they're not making their own stuff. They contract with somebody to make it. There's a whole supply chain. Somebody knits it, somebody finishes it, somebody cuts it. The fabric might come from five different places because we buy our raw material. So we make our own fabric and we make our own garments. We don't have to buy minimum size runs of Navy or black or whatever. We can buy smaller runs of yarn and we can run our knitting machines however we want to run them. So I think one of our, the cool things we do different is we're always dropping new colors and you guys have maybe have seen that we don't drop inventory as much as our customers would like. You know, that's the biggest knock is we need more inventory, which we are continually trying to do. But we're always dropping a new color. So we may not be on the uh, fashion runways, <laughs> but we also don't come out with four colors and run them for 12 months at a time. You know, I mean, we're always pounding people. And the funny thing is, there is no science behind it. We're not buying any service that tells us what the next Popular color is going to be. We literally have two or three banker's boxes full of of swatches of alpaca that we've gotten from our supplier, and we dump them out on the conference room table, and we spread them all out, and then we separate them into colors, and then we all argue about what we're going to bring in next, you know. And then we you you get it down to fifteen colors, and you pair it from fifteen to twelve, and then twelve to eight, and then
0: you just go with it. But we do listen
1: when you know enough people start saying they want a color, we'll we'll bring
0: it in. Building a brand is no easy task, and some might even suggest it's a young man's game. But yeah, uh, you all are definitely doing it your way, and doing it well. And and I saw some reference to the herd or hashtag the herd. Just what exactly is the herd?
1: So the the people that are just loyal followers. And, and I'll tell you an interesting thing. I feel like 45% of our client base are return customers. Our, our, we've got such a loyal client base. We've got people that have bought every color, everything we've ever had. It's crazy. So the herd, I actually don't know if a grouping of alpacas is a herd, but I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so the herd, the herd we send, the herd is the email list primarily. I mean, we call everybody that, that follows us the herd, but you know, it's funny. We send the email list out. We don't spam people. We, we write blogs. We get a lot of industry it's not just dignitaries. We have a number of dignitaries who write blogs for us, but we like regular people to write blogs too because we're a regular people company. You know, it's, it's one thing to, like if you have a pro and you know they're out climbing K2 or whatever, the average person, they think it's cool, but they can't identify with it. They, because they'll never get there. And so we like having people that write about real world problems. You know, people that are just a regular person that went and hiked the Appalachian Trail or the CDT or the PCT, or some of the blog topics have not been all happy. It's been about people's hardships. So that part of the business we're trying to stay focused on also giving people information that they think is interesting, trying to build that community. And that's what we really, that's what we really like. That's why I still go to all these festivals and people keep saying, Oh, you don't need to keep doing that. You know, hire somebody. And I I do have people to help me, but one of the, my favorite things is to be at festivals and talking to people. And for me, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't so fun to do, but you know, choosing the next colors and developing new products and meeting new people. I mean, it makes it all worth it because it, there was a period of time from 2019 to probably late 21 that I worked seven days a week. A lot of times people think, well, okay, the, you know, the owners of Appalachian gear, they're probably going in one or two days a week and then they're going backpacking or they're going to the beach. And, you know, it's not the case. I mean, I'm in there when everybody's gone and when it's dark. So that's, those are the behind the scenes things that happen with, uh, with entrepreneurs. And, you know, the other thing we've done is we've, we've outsourced, the things that require experts to experts like PR. I used to do all the social media myself and it was really awful. Yeah. And the funny thing, I mean, the reality of it is when I'm out doing what I like to do and I meet people that are decades younger than me, you always have that common ground, but at the same time, I'm not the best person to put images and videos in front of people that are 28 and 25 because we're, we've got that kind of a, golf you know and and me and mike are the guys that are developing the stuff and you know we've got a company full of people that are backpackers and climbers and bikers but and and you know and i like all that and i've always done all that so that is the common ground and the thing is that we weren't just two guys that said oh let's make alpaca stuff i mean we actually know how to make this we we actually customize our own machines and it I've put this on social media a couple of times, but there were some early pieces of equipment that we made that we had to use skateboard trucks and skateboard wheels and pool balls and a bunch of epoxy because there there were pieces of equipment we couldn't locate. A lot of our equipment we found in junk piles. We would go into warehouses and crawl through these junk piles and we would find equipment and we'd say, we can use that We can use that roller and we can use that motor and we come back and take it all apart and build some piece of Franken equipment. But I still have a piece of equipment that flat folds fabric and the folder runs on skateboard wheels. I just think it's the funniest thing in the world because my textile engineer friends would really laugh at me. You know, why don't you just go buy this $100,000 piece of equipment? Well, I don't have (laughs) $100,000. I had to build my own. <laughs> we wish we could bring more people into the plant. The problem is, what we do is so non-standard that we just we just can't show anybody right. what we're doing.
0: If there was uh, one thing you could tell our listeners to, first of all, where to go buy it, and is there one particular thing you would tell our listeners to try uh, as part of your gear, just as a as a first purchase? The
1: store is not open yet.
0: Uh, the other
1: thing is, we're starting to uh, put our products. In some mom and pop cottage gear shops, we're going to grow that side of the business a little bit. The interesting thing is, at this point, th- this shirt that I'm wearing, this sun hoodie, either the sun hoodie or the short sleeve tee, it's the shirt that I really wanted to make when we first started out. the The first one we made was it was such a leap forward because we were the first ones to actually put something like that out in the market. But I always knew I could make it better, and Mike always knew he could make the process better and then when we when we started making the fleece it got so popular we couldn't make the t-shirt anymore so but but this fabric is what i envisioned when we first started this company and so i would tell people if they're new to the company buy either the t-shirt or the sun hoodie and i would say the sun hoodie because it's probably of all of our pieces of of uh, apparel, I would say the sun hoodie is the most flexible over the wider, the widest range of climates because it's good in warm weather. I was, I was hiking in mine out in uh, Wyoming at 10,000 feet. And when I was out there, it was 85 degrees and not a sun, not a cloud in the sky. If you're a skier, and this sounds counterintuitive because I should be saying everybody needs to buy a hoodie (laughs) because the hoodie is the most (laughs) expensive thing we sell. But, um, if you're a skier, I would try, the fleece gator. It's two layers of the same fleece that you guys are wearing. It was kind of a throwaway product for us because what we were doing in the very beginning is we were cutting it, cutting it out of the waste sections of when we cut hoodies. And, and we have very little waste in our plant, by the way, going back to the sustainability thing. But they work pound for pound. The fleece gator. And we, we got two kinds of gators. We got the tubular gator that we call the neck pipe. And the neck pipe was a term that was coined by Jeff Garmeyer, a friend of ours that his trail name is legend. You guys may have, he's, he's gotten a lot of FKTs and he was one of the counter year triple crowners. But anyway, so our lightweight gaiter that you see most people wearing is called the neck pipe, but the fleece gaiter, um, it's impervious to snow and cold. It's a very simple design. It doesn't have a hood on it. It's just meant to, it, it covers your neck. You can pull it up a good ways in the front and back and it tucks in, it's longer in the front. I would say pound for pound, believe it or not, that fleece gator is probably the highest functioning piece of apparel that I've ever owned. And as a matter of fact, you can't wear it until it gets below 40. I mean, it's just, it's a cold weather thing. If you try to wear it when it's 45 or 50, it's just too warm. And it's funny because we just came out with this shirt. So obviously, Oh yeah, everybody buy the shirt, but I'm, I'm telling you, this fabric is what I had it the way it feels the way it drapes what you can do with it. It's the thing that I envisioned before we ever made the fabric the first time. And so that's what I would tell people to start with. The one product that we made, which has been amazing to me, is the poncho really when you look at it? People could say, Well, that's more of a leisure product, and it kind of is. And for people who aren't really doing a lot outside, I would say buy one of those ponchos because they're super warm. But the crazy thing is, when we've been at trail festivals, people are walking up to us with their ponchos, they're backpacking with the ponchos. As it turns out, it's such a multifunctional product, and which is what all people that like to be in the backcountry like multifunctional products. So you can stuff it in your sleeping bag. It's a little bit heavier than our bag liners, but our bag liners don't have a hood. It's, it's so crazy warm. And then if you actually wear rain ponchos, you can put a rain poncho over and you can hunker down in that thing in a driving rain and you would just be nice and toasty. And so this, the ponchos most of the time have stripes. I wanna go back to the sustainability thing really quick. All of our stripes are limited runs because the way we make stripes is we use all the leftover yarn on the cones from running our other fabric, So we wind up with zero waste. And that's why people will say, well, I wish you would bring back the arcade stripe. Well, we can't. And what I do is I go out and tell the guys running the machines, they're like, what do you want? And I'm like, I'll tell you what, just you make a stripe that you think is killer. And it's like one of the most fun things they do because they get to go into all the boxes of these spare cones and they'll start pulling them out and conceive, I don't have any input on strikes anymore. And it's awesome because every time they come out with a strike, it's like the best one I've ever seen.
0: I did want to ask you another question that we ask all of our guests, just in tradition of, of what we ask everybody. I'm always interested to hear the answer to this question, but being a long time Appalachian, what's the first thing that rolls off the tongue, or what do you think of first when you hear the word Appalachian?
1: I think Smoky Mountains. I used to tell this story. So there was a period of my life where I wore suits all the time. So the only time I wear a suit now is at a wedding or a funeral, and I don't. I don't do that if I can get away with it. But even back when I was wearing suits, if I was riding down I-40 or up 321 or one of those roads, and I got into the mountains, I would have to stop and just go out and take a walk, even if it made me late. I've been late to plenty of meetings. But there's just something about the Smoky Mountains. You know, the big difference between the Continental Divide Trail and the PCT, when you compare both of those with Appalachians, is, uh, you know, the AT people call the green tunnel. Because you're in the woods most of the time. And there are some people that just love those, the western views. You get above the tree line and, you know, but there's something about being in those woods. It's just a misty woods. It's just, there's like an adventure around every corner. So, when I hear Appalachian, I always think Smoky Mountains.
0: That's a really good answer. We we hear mountains a lot. We, there's another question that we ask all our guests. Our, our podcast, it's kind of grounded on place and perspective, you know, especially in Appalachia. Place is really important. It's almost like its own character. We wanted to ask you, and you've already kind of alluded to it, but just where do you call home and what makes it home for you?
1: Well, Charlotte is my home but I spend a lot of times in the mountains. We have a little family place up in the mountains. You know, some people are beach people and some people are mountain people. Charlotte will always be my home. It's for me, even though I was born and raised in Charlotte, I've always lived here. the, The mountains are really like my home. I mean, when I think about the place that I'm the most comfortable, it's anywhere, in the, it's anywhere in the mountains, almost in any state. It's just because of the the adventure of it and, you know, what's over that next hill.
0: Neil, Neil and I say all the time there's a little magic in the mountains.
1: Yeah. Maybe a little moonshine
0: here and there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. With that. Right, I, I want to ask you a couple of quick hitter questions. You know, you mentioned your history on the AT and, you know, with your family, taking your uh, – I think you mentioned your kids on the AT. But what – even if it's not the AT, what's your favorite hike of all time? It's a couple of things. The most beautiful area I've ever been is the, the
1: all the AT sections through Massachusetts. It's just, there's some really an enchanted forest looking places up there. I would say my, my favorite place to be, whether it's day hiking or just overnights, or even if I'm doing a section is that kind of Roan Mountain through Grayson Highlands area. I just think that area of the of the at is just beautiful i would say my my favorite adventure hiking has got to be i've done a lot out west i'd say wyoming i've been there a number of times and just for the pure adventure of it because you know for through hikers they zip right through wyoming if they're doing the cdt Um, but it's rugged you know for me i can get into places that challenge me to the max physically, you know, and I'm an old dirt bike rider and I wouldn't say I'm an adrenaline junkie, but I certainly have done my share of adrenaline things and had some spectacular wrecks and injuries and things like that. So I like to be in places where I'm a little bit scared.
0: (laughs) Good, good answer. (laughs) What what about, uh, what's your favorite time of year to hike?
1: It depends on the area, really. I mean, uh, I would, I would just say summertime, I mean, the thing with the AT is you're always wet. I don't mind cold weather backpacking. As a matter of fact, if, if I'm prepared for it, I like it a lot. But there's just something about being able to go a little bit lighter. And you know the weather's going to be warm. You know you're going to be wet. So I would, I would say June, July are my yeah. favorite hiking months.
0: What about, uh, you may have already answered this, uh, but in terms of gear, what's the one piece of gear that you never leave home without? Moonshine. Um,
1: well, it's funny you say that because i was <laughs> I was,
0: was going to say a little a little flask
1: of uh, George Dickel <laughs> <laughs> no. because if if you're out west and it's cool, or if you've twisted an ankle or something, you know, I think it's marginally better than pounding your body with uh, a leave or Advil. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. But I'll tell you, I always people laugh at me. Uh, I'm not a UL guy. You know, I like redundancy. I like to have the stuff that I think I need. And I always carry a big old giant knife with me. And people are like, well, that thing weighs a pound. I'm like, yeah, it weighs a pound, but I'm carrying it with me. Every, every I've had that knife with me for probably 30 years. And it's just a big old giant hunting knife.
0: Nice. <laughs> As a fellow Appalachian, I got to ask this question. Biscuits or cornbread? Biscuits. All right. All right. Biscuits, for yeah. sure.
1: I don't, I don't want to turn away cornbread. I'll eat the hell out of it. <laughs> yeah. But
0: if I get to choose, I'll choose a biscuit every time. All right. We really appreciate your time, appreciate what you're doing, what you do, what you have done, and especially what you're doing there in that little town of Kings Mountain to bring that history of textile back to a small town, revitalizing that small town. And, and we want to thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me. And and I'll, I'll finish up by saying um, – Any opinions that I stated, I might change my mind tomorrow. So I might go with Jack Daniels instead of George Dickel next time.
0: (laughs) 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 You're talking to a couple Kentucky boys. We're going to cut that out, Jack Daniels. All right, guys. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Well, man. Thanks to John for coming on tonight and uh, teaching us a little about the retail world in general and also about his type of fabric that he uses and just how they got into that, the alpaca fabric, one that is not easy to work with. And obviously he has figured out a way to to bring that to, to all of us and... Very interesting on uh, just how that company has grown and what they're doing now, and makes me even more interested in getting more of their gear. Anytime you're going for a hike or going on a camping trip, you better you better make sure you get on their website and check them out because all their stuff is fire. Yeah, definitely. I, I like how he mentioned you know that they they thought they were defeated a lot just trying to produce that alpaca, but they finally succeeded in that, in, in you know bringing alpaca to the world. It's a Cool story, cool concept and, and awesome gear. I thought it was really neat too that they brought it back to King's Mountain, back to where it all began for them in kind of the same area that they originally started. Similar story to a lot of entrepreneurs, Will. They, they fight the good fight and continue down that path and they never give up like true Appalachians. And eventually they, they find their path, but it's never easy for entrepreneurs And these guys have been at it for a while. You know, John has gotten over the hump, so to speak, and continuing to do great things uh, with the Appalachian Gear Company. Like you said, you know, they've been in the industry, textile industry for over a couple of decades, John Gage and Mike Hawkins, and have been through, been part of several, as partners, several entrepreneur ventures. This may be the cream of the crop. I feel like this is an awesome brand, awesome company, Awesome fiber, awesome product. If you haven't checked it out, definitely check them out. I'm assuming, Neil, you want to talk about the app biz of the week this week? I was just about to say none other than the Appalachian Gear Company. We can't go in any other direction than that. But you can visit AppalachianGearCompany.com. Obviously, easy to find that website. They got great gear on there, really tells their story. It's got gear for men and women, children. Anything you want to find is all on their website. It's become the way of the world, uh, e-commerce will. And uh, what these guys have figured out how to work with that alpaca fabric is amazing. And it also has a great feel, great fit, and uh, really keeps you warm. So please go online, check out the Appalachian Gear Company and all their great products. You heard straight out of John's mouth what he would try first. So uh, if you want to go on there and get some of that gear that he recommended or just jump right into the to the sweatshirt, uh, I think you're, you're going to be happy either way. Uh, thanks for that, Neil. I guess we can keep the outro a little short this week. It's all about the Appalachian Gear Company and what they have. Um, I'm excited to see what they what they're uh, going to produce going forward. Change of the seasons coming. Make sure you get online, check them out, get some gear, going into the holidays. I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm
1: up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with the grim city too long, sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs, now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.